surfboard all right. Looks like a 57 Chevy I used to have. It's the ultimate rush. There's nothing that comes close to it. Not even sex. Surfers. It's a real thin line between life and death. Let me go out there. Let me get one wave. One wave. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Welcome, folks, to Mojo U. This is the University of Mojo. This is the place where you learn all the tips and tools, the opinions of others that we can put into our own world to get our mojo working, whether it be at work or at play, in the community, your spirit, your creativity, just general mojo stuff. And this is a university course that you do with us each week. <laughs> university? <laughs> Talking it up. The University oh, of plug. Mojo. <laughs> give it a go. It is. It's like a it's like a mojo degree. Yeah. And at the end of each year, we hand out certificates. Yeah. And Tim Tams. <laughs> Tim Tams. Oh, I've got to say, I'm enjoying my, uh, I ran out of caveman coffee, so I uh, saw my good friend Pete Harrison, and I'm all fi- fired up on Fish River Roast. Hello to all our friends at nice. Fish River Roasters. A bit of tiger snake this morning? No, I'm actually running the espresso, just oh, straight. Okay. I'm not right. going too wacky. Yeah. yeah. Keeping it simple. A bit of MCT oil and uh, some Siltep, and we are good to go. We're in the driver's seat. Uh, I'm good. How are you, mate? I'm great. Speaking of locally made, I actually gave up my beer at the bar with the boys on Saturday afternoon to, to follow a bit of a lesson that we preach about on the Mojo Radio Show. Mm, do tell. We decided that um, we needed to know what it was in our food and where it came from, so um, instead of going to the pub, we went to Sean's place out the back and had a bit of a sausage and salami making session. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, some organic pork, went through the mincer and we made a few different flavours, Thai and made our own sausages and we got about 12 kilos of salami hanging up in Sean's garage to air dry. So there you go. The good gear. Oh, we're hanging out for the salami, I tell you what. Chili, garlic. fermented mm. gear. Absolutely. The Mojo Radio Show. Simmer down, you noisy, screaming thing. All right, now a quick update, kids. Lisa Blair was on our little program, episode 121. Now, Lisa is going to be the first woman to circumnavigate Antarctica. Yeah, and I think will only be the third person in history to achieve the feat Uh, One of our listeners got in touch with me on Saturday evening and alerted me to the fact that her mast had snapped. Now, the circumnavigation means she can't have any contact or assistance. Mm. So I was a bit shocked, got online, and there's a tracker on Lisa Blair's website that shows where she is. And her blog said that once the weather had calmed, she was up there with her welder and her angle grinder (laughs) fixing the mast. And uh, she expects to be back sailing towards the record uh, in the next day or so. So uh, a quick update for anybody who's been following the Mojo Radio Show journey with Lisa Blair, an amazing lady, really cool show, episode 121, live from the Antarctic Ocean. Uh, so there you go. How many lessons can you take from what this girl's doing? Uh, this lady is doing, you know, grit, determination, following your dreams. She's just an amazing woman, isn't she? Yeah. Well, hope we could, hopefully, when she's completed this record and done the whole thing safely, we'll get her on the program to sort of debunk the whole whole story. Uh, but just terrific. And give her a pat on the back too. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Help us get the Mojo Radio Show on the iTunes What's Hot list. Hit up the Mojo Radio Show and leave a comment now. Oh, and please... You are such a disappointing pair. Be gentle with us. Some years ago, I met Lane Beachley for the first time and we were both doing a speaking gig together and I think I was on before Lane and then afterwards... 
we just sat down, had a cup of coffee, and I was struck by what just a fantastic person Lane Beachley is, let alone her record of being a seven-time surfing world champion, an ambassador for good with the number of charities that she works upon, the good she's doing in society right now. And I think just above everything else, just a really great Australian lady who is doing really good work, is not afraid to share her story. So it's taken me quite a while to get a hold of Lane only because she has so much going on, but we are delighted to have her. Lane Beachley, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you. A lot has happened in your world. Most of our listeners would know you as a former world surfing champ and then they may not know that only a couple of years ago in the Australia Day Honours, you were anointed with the Officer of the Order of Australia for Distinguished Services to the Community. So you are doing loads of work in charitable stuff and mentoring women and so on. So, Lane, when somebody says to you today, what do you do, what do you say? I do a variety of things. So uh, I'm a motivational speaker. I also deliver workshops. I am the chairman of Surfing Australia. I sit on two other boards. I have my own charity, Aim for the Stars, and 100% of the time I surf. (laughs) So the answer in short is not much then? (laughs) No, not much at all. (laughs) I'm still a hyper thriver. On the show, Lane, we've been talking to a lot of uh, positive psychologists and and sporting people, business people, and I guess we've been following the, the world of grit and resilience and toughening it out. And in going through preparation for speaking to you today, it just seems that grit and resilience has been a big part of your character. For as long as you can remember, has that been part of your makeup? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I've also been doing some research into my own sense of resilience and where that comes from because I deliver workshops on resilience. And the... The research indicates that research, resilience in children comes from having a really stable, strong relationship with one adult. And I was very fortunate that I had that relationship with my father. He has always been my, my rock in my life. So um, the resilience that I was able to build as a child has obviously served me well as an adult. And if I can take you back to that time, so Neil, Neil being your dad yep. and Valerie being your mum... It wasn't until later on in your life that you that your dad told you that you'd been adopted. Yeah. So you had, let's just say, kind of a, a bumpy, untraditional start to your childhood. Mm-hmm. When you look back on that period of your life and how your dad handled that and how your dad took you through that period, do you think that has had, had something to do? Because when I read stuff about you, it seems that even when you got in the surf at a very young age, you had this, you were just you wouldn't let people push you around. Like you certainly had this backbone and, and an attitude of of grit. Does that come, do you think, of you having to face up to these things as a kid? Well, it's interesting that you refer to my bumpy and untraditional upbringing. I, I honestly believe that started with just my birth. Uh, you know, my oh, my right mother, <laughs> <laughs> my mum tells me, because I, I met my biological mother when I was about 27. And um, she informed me that uh, to give birth to me, she is quite a petite woman and I was a very small baby, but she still had problems with the birth and had to have a, um, a spine, spinal tap and uh, she was in labor for over 22 hours. And then I was a, 
um, a premature baby, so I was then placed in a humidicrib for the first six weeks of my life. So I had to learn to fight for life. I had to learn to breathe. Um, I was never held or nurtured or breastfed. Um, so I'm sure that 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 upbringing or that beginning in my life was where my fortitude was was groomed and also where um, a lot of my resilience was created. You know, I, I don't, can't imagine what the technology was like in 1972, but I was very grateful that we had it. And, um, yeah, that taught me really to, to fight. And then losing my mother when I was four and then uh, entering the – I mean, losing – Learning how to surf when I was four, so entering that male-dominated environment was very challenging. Losing my mother when I was six was very challenging. My dad telling me I was adopted when I was eight was definitely one of the most profound moments in my life that had a, a real serious impact on the directions and the choices that I made. Um, and then pursuing a, a goal that was deemed to be, in lack of a better term, worthless because you know there's, there's no hope in, in you becoming a, a surfer. Um, you're not talented enough, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, uh, there's no money in it, get yourself a real job, keep it as a hobby. I mean, yeah, I, I encountered a lot of challenge and hostility in the early years of my life and um, and I'm grateful for those challenges because it definitely, it, it definitely strengthened my character and, and the way that you deal with your challenges um, fortifies your character much more than the challenges themselves. That moment where Neil, at the age of eight, told you you're adopted, you just referred to it. Can you still recall the emotions today about that moment where you had that conversation with your dad? And what was it like? Absolutely. I remember my dad sitting me down on the couch and you know, basically doing his best to reassure me that uh, he loves me like his own daughter and that uh, they were so grateful that they were able to to pick me up from the hospital because they always wanted a baby girl, but unfortunately Valerie couldn't have any more children after she gave birth to my brother Jason. And, you know, there was all this uh, reassurance going on, but ultimately I was waiting for the but, like, but what? And that but was, you're not a blood relation, you are adopted. And so even though my dad, he had very loving, tender words and very uh, a deep sense of compassion and, and empathy, what he was saying and what I was hearing were two very different messages. So he was saying, <laughs> <laughs> he was saying, we love you, but you're, you're not from us. You're not with blood relation. And I was hearing, I'm worthless. I've been rejected. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm a, I've been abandoned. I'm, I'm undeserving of, of love. I've, my own, my own mother didn't even want me. So, um, I had a very, you know, I had a, a, a very big choice to make. I had um, I could become the victim of the circumstances in which I found myself in, or I could become the architect of my future and become the master of my destiny. So I chose the latter. Good word, architect of my. That's beautiful. <laughs> oh, that's gold, gold, or it's a gold surfboard. It's a golden wave. There's a gold fin there already. It's a golden <laughs> wave already. Oh, already we've hit it. It's a golden tuna. Does that mean we've hit it already? Can I go now? Are we done? I want to go for a surf. Yeah, you're done. That's it. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Your time's been your time's been most valuable. Hey, um, <laughs> you're so welcome. I want to take you down that laneway a, a little bit further because I'm also oh, adopted. Pardon the pun. Yeah, uh, that's right. I'm also adopted. Um, no way. Yeah, I was adopted at like three or four days old, but I've always known 
My, I, really? I, I never remember a time of not knowing. And in fact, my mother tells the story that she told me when I was starting in, at preschool. How old were you? Do you remember? Well, I was about three or four. So way before mm-hmm. any memories that I have. But I've never really been affected by it. I've never really mm-hmm. mulled it over or anything. And I'm wondering if you think that it would have affected you any differently if you hadn't known earlier. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Did you grow up with both a mother and a father? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. So I think my sense of void came from the fact that I'd lost my mother 18 months prior to that and then being told that I was, as far as I was concerned, that I wasn't deserving of my mother's love anyway. Mm. Um, So I'm sure that had some sort of impact on the way that I chose to perceive it and then respond to it. Um, And I I believe that had I been told earlier, then I would have had a uh, probably, well, you know, it's hard to say. You know, a lot of people ask me, do you think you would have won as many world titles if you weren't as fiercely driven as you were? And I was like, well, it was what it was. That's the, that's what I chose to be. So I don't know. But I, but the, what I know these days about how the child's brain evolves, because the first six years of our life, we're in a three-theta brainwave state. Our minds are so open to learning. We're basically programming. We're downloading. We're recording. We're absorbing. We're learning. So that by the time we're seven, we've uh, we've created the capacity for critical thinking, which then comes in bring comes with it is judgment and criticism and um, comparison. And um, I believe that if you're going to share information that can be quite so impactful as being told you're adopted, earlier is better because you don't have the capacity to judge it as much as you do by the time you're seven years old. I want to continue down this pluck or this grit resilience <laughs> that you you talk as pluck with a PL. The um <laughs> it's I, I read like you're a very proud manly person, basically raised there, still lived there, which I think is just wonderful. And I read a story about you going out when you were kind of fifteen years old and heading into the water in Manly and you were winning you were winning competitions in the water there, but in the early days you would have guys basically throwing water in your face and telling you, you you don't deserve to be here, get out. And you you had this pluck Mm. to sit around and say, well, why are you here? (laughs) Yeah, it's cheeky. I want to know where that comes from because when when Neil spoke to you, you heard, I'm not worthy, I'm I'm worthless. Yet in the water, you believed you were, you were worthy. What were, where did that, where was the gap between those two things? How did you close them? Why was it in the water? you seem to have this grit resilience and the language in your own mind was changed? It's a very good question. I've never really thought about it in this way. The first thing that comes to mind when you ask it is the fact that I was in an environment that was way more powerful than me, so I had to surrender Mm. to a degree. The second thing was is that when I was sitting on the couch with my dad, it was just me and my dad. There was no one around me to support me. So the thoughts that I had were my own and they weren't to be shared with anybody. When I was encountering hostility and threat and challenge from the guys in the water, there were always guys next to me who were in support of me. So it made me start to value uh, or understand the law of proximity and the kind of people that you had around you shaped the person that you became. So I just learned to, to listen to the people that I wanted to listen to and, and discredit or discount the people that I didn't want to listen to. So the difference was I had to listen to my dad and therefore the only thoughts that I could listen to from then on were my own, whereas I had um, external validation and support that actually gave me reason to reconsider 
what I was thinking. And so for every one of those guys that says you're a girl, get out of the water, if that's all I was encountering day in and day out, then I would have got out of the water. But fortunately, I was also surrounded by guys who said, I believe in you. You've got what it takes. Come surf with me. Well, let's, let's go down that pathway. Let's take that exit lane. Um, <laughs> the people you were surrounded with, and I'm going to throw a few names here, Robbo. Tom Carroll. Tom Carroll, yes. Wendy Botha. Yep. Pam Burridge. Yes. Just to name a few. They're all skateboarders, aren't they? And big fans. And it's probably worthy to say they're all big fans of the Mojo Radio Show. Oh. Hello to those guys. Oh, on the phone. They're always... They, they did skate, but it's not what they became professional at. Yeah. <laughs> What's, what I'm curious about with this, Lane, is that they were the people that you surrounded yourself with and you embraced. And yes. you weren't intimidated by these legends of the surfing world. I mean, we hear those names and we know they're household legendary names, but you weren't intimidated. You were drawn towards them and you were humble enough to say, answer these questions, tell me how you did it. Why were you drawn to those people when most of us would have been intimidated being in the water with those people? Because they had what I want and I wanted to learn from that. They were all world champions and I wanted to be a world champion. So leaders learn from the mistakes of others. Fools just love to learn from their own. So when you surround yourself with the experts, you save yourself a shitload of time. And uh, I thought, well, if you guys are world champions, you're obviously doing stuff that I haven't done or you've done it in a way that I probably haven't even considered. So share with me your knowledge and um, let me learn from you. So that's why I just I handpicked world champions that I also respected. There's a lot of world champions out there that people don't respect and, and I uh, have a, a enormous respect for Tom and Wendy and Pam and, and Barton Lynch and those guys who um, were pioneers and, um, and champions. So yeah. that's why, yeah. Now, if we go down another Australian icon, uh, he was a terrific guy. We've, we've also done some stuff with Guy Leach, former champion Ironman. He's a good mate of yours. So it wasn't, and the reason I bring up Leachy was that it wasn't all sunshine and roses for you in that period of your life in surfing. You also had some pretty dark moments, which I want to sort of venture into in a second. But before we do that, Leachy came up to you and in your own words on a video clip that I saw, he said, you seem to have lost your mojo. What's going on? Mm-hmm. And you said at that time, it was the first time I really had to admit somebody that you had lost your mojo and you thanked Leachy for being honest enough to say, hey, mate, this is not great. Where are you at? Why do we find it Why do we find it so hard to reach out to people? Because this is a constant thing that we hear a lot from people who have gone out of darkness. But when you're in the darkness, you don't reach out. Why is that? Well, I think it's, it's different for everybody. Some reasons, uh, well, some people don't want to reach out because they don't want to burden other people with their pain and suffering. They don't want to acknowledge that they're in a state of pain and suffering. They don't want to be seen as being vulnerable or weak, or they just don't want to know what they don't want to know. Um, they they can put on this facade that it's all good and put on the happy face where deep down they're feeling that sense of restlessness and fear and, and unhappiness. Um, but if they let people know that in that way, then they may have to address it and deal with it. A lot of people don't want to deal with their demons. They don't, they don't want to address stuff that makes them feel uncomfortable, even though they're already at a state of discomfort. 
So uh, it's um, it's different for everybody. Um, and for me at the time, especially when Leachy, I mean, he's pulled me up several times, but this one particular time I think you're referring to is when I was competing for my sixth consecutive world title. For me, I was supposed to have it all together. I was at a time when I was at the pinnacle of my career. I was the face of the sport. I was the... The, um, the I was the reigning world champion, you know. I was the queen of surfing, and so when you're queen and you're you're on top of the world, you're supposed to have your shit together. And I apparently <laughs> I didn't. So um, <laughs> fortunately, I had someone like Leachy pull me up on it and say, "Hey, Gitch, you need to pull your head in and." do something about it because basically he gave me a choice. The, yeah. There are a lot of lessons in that though. But if, you know, if you're a leech, you're having the courage to go to a mate and say, hey, listen, things aren't good. Oh, no, I'm fine. No, I know you. Things aren't good. <laughs> yeah. And then from the other perspective is being able to take that advice from someone who actually cares is coming from the right place to actually take stock of yourself and go, you know what, I need a bit of a yeah, hand, isn't it? exactly. And it's, it's both people require a whole lot of courage. Like you mm. say, courage and respect uh, and a sense of vulnerability and acceptance because Leachy saw it plain as day and it's really easy from an outsider's point of view to see when things are going well or not going quite so well and uh, for him to have the respect and compassion for me to just come to my house and announce one afternoon and say, hey, you need to do something about this, I had to accept it. Otherwise... What you resist persists, right? If you're not going to look at it, then the pain and suffering will just continue. And um, I knew where he was coming from. I appreciated his intentions and I chose to do something about it as opposed to pretending it's all okay. The other thing that I really learnt from that more than anything is that it's 100% okay to be not okay. Another quote for the studio wall in there, Gary, what you resist persists. I like that. Yep. It's okay it, to not be okay, gold. Yeah, just quote me on that, please. Yeah, yeah, well, I'll credit you when I use that from now on, yeah. Yes, please do. <laughs> Lane, can I ask you about that? We, um, we've got a good mate who is also a mate of yours, uh, Joel Pilgrim from One Wave Is All It Takes. Yep. And I know you know those guys and I know you're mutual fans of each other. And where I want to go with this is you stated that in one six-month period of your life, you were waking up every single day thinking of a different way to leave the planet to kill yourself. Is, is that one of the reasons why you are drawn to programs like One Wave is All It Takes and the boys down there? Uh, it's definitely one of the reasons, certainly. I mean, the, one of the reasons I'm drawn to One Wave is All It Takes is that surfing has literally saved my life on so many occasions. So I understand the therapeutical benefits of immersing yourself in nature, immersing yourself in a force. It's so much more powerful teaching yourself to surrender, overcoming fear. That's what the ocean does for you on a daily basis. So uh, I love the fact that they're utilizing the therapeutic benefits of, of surfing to help people overcome some of the challenges that they're going through, some of the mental health challenges or physical challenges that they may be enduring in a certain period of time. And you went, you went from that dark period into winning your sixth world champion and – Hearing you talk about your dreams, you always wanted to be a world champion. And in your words, you wanted to be a record breaker or a history maker. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the time when that dream first entered your mind, Lane? And what was the catalyst for it? And why why did you so believe you could do it? Well, I remember when my dad told me I was adopted and, and I decided that to be the architect of my future or the master of my destiny, I had to become the best in the world at something. 
And as most people who are successful in certain careers, they'll say that the passion chose me. I didn't choose it. And I truly believe surfing chose me um, because it was the one thing that I was consistently drawn to. It was the one thing I was consistently passionate about, thinking about, focused on, daydreaming about. And so when I chose surfing over every other sport that I thought I was going to be good enough to become a world champion at, I had to dedicate myself. And quite honestly, the first event I ever competed in, I came dead last. So it was definitely testing my resolve. (laughs) Um, And so once I started to consistently perform at a level that I was somewhat satisfied with, um, you know, and then I joined the Pro Tour, I I was challenged quite a lot and I I saw coming second in the world, which I did twice, as a dismal failure because I had placed this expectation on my shoulders that I had to be the best in the world to prove that I was deserving of love. And when I became the best in the world and proved that point, I still didn't feel that sense of enough because I had told myself when I was eight years old, I have to become the best in the world. Not only do I have to become the best in the world, I have to become the best of the best in the world. So it's a lot of expectations and pressure to put on your shoulders and uh, it costs me a lot. <laughs> you know, I've got the trophy cabinet, but well, actually I've got a trophy room, but it costs me my quality of life um, and quality of friendships, quality of health and well-being as well. So it costs me a lot and it's also provided me with a lot. And I'm grateful that I've been able to reflect on the lessons that I've learned and ensure that I don't make the same mistakes again. Would you do it all again? I would do it all again and I certainly would do it a little bit differently. But I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to do it the way that I did it and learn from it and not continue to drive myself so unrelenting and so fierce and so driven to the point of exhaustion and... um, Isolation. There's a quote that I read that I loved. Something you said, Lane, you said, if I'd, you cannot begin to imagine where you would be now if you'd let money dictate your love of surfing. Yet it feels to me like many people who have a dream let the money side get in front of the passion side. Do you notice that with some of the young kids and entrepreneurs you're working with? Yes, I do actually, and I, I actually I notice that with everybody that I work with, they 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 focus on making money as opposed to doing something they love, and it, it I mean it's such a, a hindsight comment, and a lot of people look at me and go, well, it's easy for you to say living the rock star life with your rock star husband, but quite honestly, I've come from extremely humble beginnings, and um, and I know what it's like to be on the bare bones of my ass. I know what it's like to just be just going day to day and, and making enough money to make ends meet every day. You know, I used to travel with a jar of Vegemite because that was my my source of nutrients and protein and sustenance. Um, and, <laughs> and the meals that I used to make from Vegemite were really creative. <laughs> I was going to say, at least you were eating well. I know, I was. Because yeah. you know, rice is really cheap and in certain countries, avocado were quite cheap and so we couldn't afford, afford to buy soy sauce. So we actually made soy sauce out of Vegemite and hot water and poured that over the rice with avocado and that became oh, one of our meals. <laughs> you make ends meet. Not just a world champion, but a bloody innovator, can I just say? Uh, Look at that. You should be a master chef. Lane's Culinary kitchen creative. rules. Look at me go. Look at you go. <laughs> so to answer your question, yes, 
um, I, uh, I have, I have very, um, big expectations of myself and, uh, the lessons that I've learned have been incredibly valuable. I'd like to know about the lessons you learnt from a guy who's known as the Sand Hill Warrior. <laughs> you spoke openly about how he built this this system inside of you or this belief inside of you. I'd like to know specifically what did you learn from those sandhills with the Sandhill Warrior? Well, I learned the value of hard work and there's a very big difference between hard work and working hard. So um, working on the sand dunes, for example, at Palm Beach taught me um, – taught me a lot about myself as far as how hard I can push myself and what my limitations are and how we create our own limitations in life. And you know, we put all these uh, boundaries around what we can and can't do. And um, I think it, Rob taught me the value of, of listening to my body and, and focusing on, on my goals and, and not giving up on them because there was plenty of times that I did want to give up on them. And uh, he was another one of, of, of my friends who I referred to as my honesty barometer, similar, similar to, to Guy Leach, who had to ask me some pretty tough questions. But from the onset, Rob set the standards. He basically pro- he asked me to prove to him how committed am I to do the work. And uh, showing up at Palm Beach, I didn't have my license at the time, so I had to get in the bus from Manly and get up to Palm Beach by 8 o'clock in the morning to then run on the soft sand in an Indian file sprint up to the northern end to then do 40 hills, 1,000 sit-ups, 500 push-ups, Indian file sprints back. And that was just, that was one session on a Sunday morning. So, yeah, he made me prove it. And I proved it time and time again. So he taught me the value of working hard. He taught me the value of, of honouring the people who are investing in you uh, and repaying that twofold. He taught me um, the value of listening to the subtleties of my language. He used to run up and down those sand hills with a shirt and on the back of his shirt, because he normally just wore sluggos, but on sometimes he wore a shirt. And on the back of his shirt, he had the vitamins for victory and it had from vitamins A to F and every one of those letters stood for a different word and they, they became the vitamins in which I lived my life by. So it was attitude, belief, commitment, enthusiasm, discipline and fun even though the E comes after the D. Golden alphabet, Lane. <laughs> oh, you just, you've just yeah. dropped a gold bomb. <laughs> and we can all turn those, those letters into something that resonates with us. But uh, And then also the quality of people that I was training with also drove me to, to train harder and be more. You know, I was training with Tom Carroll. was quite challenging because he's a little pocket rocket and so strong and um, and so fit and, and running up a sand dune and hearing Tom behind me going, I'm coming after you, LB. I'm coming after you. I'm going to get you. I'm going to get you. <laughs> You just, <laughs> you're like, oh, don't catch me. <laughs> dig deeper, LB, dig deeper, come on. <laughs> so, yeah, he taught me that he taught me a lot of uh, values in life, which I'm very grateful for as well. I wanted to, to let people know that although it all looks like sunshine and roses in everybody's world, including six-time world champions, not every or day. Or seven-times world champions. Sorry, or seven times. Seven? <laughs> yeah. Seventh, seven-time world champion. <laughs> not every day is it. Not, not every day is a Doris day, right? There's going to be no. the wheels are going to the wheels are going to fall off. And even more recently, I saw an article published on you and your rock star husband Kirk that he he had his own health scare only in the last couple of years where he faced cancer. And the two of you 
faced it together. I'd like to know when when your back, when Lane's back is against the wall and things do go pear-shaped, where do you go in your mind? Like where do you take yourself? What's the dialogue in your head? Ah, that's a very good question. So physically I, I take myself into nature because it's a grounding force. It's a, it's a place where I feel nurtured and comforted and understood and it's a place of solace for me. So I, I usually, if I'm having a bad day or a hard time, if I can't dive in the ocean, I'll actually go and sit in a bath. Just immersing myself in water is very right. therapeutic. Interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's kind of going back to the womb to a degree. But um, when things are going hard, I mentally, I have to become aware of how I'm thinking because it affects how I'm feeling. And so most of us aren't occur- even aware of what we're thinking or saying to ourselves until we start to behave in a different way. And then so ultimately it usually takes somebody else to pull us up on it. I was sick. Uh, with cancer, I remember feeling helpless and then similar to every challenge that I faced, sooner or later I get to the point where I ask myself, what are you going to do about it? Who can you talk to about it? Where can you learn more about it? Because knowledge is power. Who can you reach out to? What kind of knowledge do you need to attain to give you a greater sense of clarity or control over this situation? Um, but essentially it always comes back to what are you going to do about it? Do you remember an event like that, Lane, where that voice was in your head and you you just didn't feel it, like you didn't have your mojo working, yet you had to compete? Do you remember a moment like that and what you did and how you dealt with it? I remember millions of moments like that because I've, I've uh, overcome so many injuries in my surfing career. You know, uh, I had a wave at sunset in Hawaii that was about, 20 feet high and it landed on the small of my lower back and folded me in half and it crushed my lumbar spine and it was painful. Uh, I remember coming up screaming, going, oh, my back, my back, my back. <laughs> I'm just fighting tears back and and then I surfed through the heat and um, I, I just, I compartmentalized things. I put it out of my mind because I've, I'm so goal-orientated. <laughs> I was so fiercely driven. And so I came in and I went straight to the chiropractor and I went, I think I've crushed my spine. I've done something to my spine. And he laid me on the table and he's like, yep, you've done some pretty serious damage. Do you want to surf the next heat? Because it's the final. And if you win the final, then you win your second world title. I'm like, yeah, of course I do. Um, So basically I put ice on it. I went into the water. I, I just did a little bit of swimming just to loosen up my lower back. I paddled back out and I won the final and I won my second world title. And uh, it's just a matter of staying on the job and staying focused on what you can control, which is how you're thinking and how you're feeling and then the actions that you choose to take. But also honoring the fact that you are weakened, you are <laughs> injured, Um knowing that, okay, what I'm about to do is going to actually increase the level of pain and suffering. So I have to honor that after this and ensure that I'm going to give myself a long enough break to allow my body to heal itself. So if you're going to push through, if you're going to suck it up and push it through, you have to honor that by, you know, your body will honor you for as long as it takes until you stop honoring it. And if you're not going to honor it, then it'll pull you up and shut you down. Yeah. I had a similar experience to that a couple of weeks ago playing old boys rugby. 
I was. Um, oh yeah, how'd you go? Oh, what happened? It, it was just before <laughs> half time, and I was desperate for a beer, but I, I pushed yeah. through for the next three minutes to half time, and um, I just got there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I see. Okay. Oh goodness, too much <laughs> trivialising. Um, did you have a second beer? Oh, at full time, yeah. At, I did. You know, I didn't want to spoil myself for the second half. Full time, I had a second one. Yeah, yeah right. Well, that's all about balance. <laughs> and an orange. And an orange. <laughs> and an orange. <laughs> Robbo, Lane and I actually do have something in common. Okay. Mm. We're both glutards. Ah, so is my missus. There you go. Mm. We're both what? Glutards. Oh, glutards. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So you should wear glutards. <laughs> Haven't you heard that before? No. Oh, I like that. No. Yeah. Oh, Gary, yeah, we both, glutards. Lane and I both suffer from glutardation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're glutarded. We are glutarded. Oh, <laughs> yeah, we uh, we we shall not, Lane, go to planet gluten. No, we shall not. We shall find our own planet. That's like kryptonite to Superman. It is kryptonite, and that's what I want to talk to you about because I hear there's a lot of people like William Davis writing books about gluten with wheat belly. It's 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 become sadly a trendy thing, which people don't understand. But you're one of the few people that I've heard talk about how debilitating a gluten intolerance can be. Can you just talk about that little period of your world, how it affected you, how it affected your thinking, your energy levels, your performance um, during that time where you were suffering from this glutidation? <laughs> glutidation. Well, the glutidation was actually a result of chronic fatigue syndrome and chronic fatigue was what impacted me a whole lot more than my glutidation. But I, uh, I am actually... I don't know how to, you're going to have to help me out with this. I'm allergic to yeast. Yes. So I'm a yeastard. Yeastation. You're a yeastard. You get a yeastardation. I'm yeastarded. <laughs> yes. There you go. You know it. See, so you're getting that. I'm getting that. I'm a quick learner. It's a bit of a shame that we're bringing you down to our level, but, you know, you're getting it. Yeah, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show family, Lane. You're fitting right in. <laughs> I'm feeling like part of the gang. Yep. So... Originally, there was no such thing as a gluten-free menu when I became gluten intolerant, which was back in 1995. So, uh, and also being yeast, uh, allergic to yeast, and then going, I had to go on a very strict diet, so you know, yeast, wheat, sugar, dairy, fruits, uh, red meat, alcohol, nothing preserved, tin canned, no, yeah, so no fun. And it was a real challenge to get to live life like that um, because there was no real knowledge around it. Now, obviously, as you're saying, there's books about it and there's gluten-free menus in every restaurant and everyone's accommodating of these glutides. It has become very trendy. And quite honestly, it's a, it's a health choice. It's actually much better for you if you avoid gluten. There's a lot of people with IBS and all sorts of other stomach issues that if they stay off gluten, it's change their world and that's great because it's a really easy thing to do once you become accustomed to it however being yeast intolerant or yeast uh what am i i'm not intolerant i'm actually allergic to yeast has a much different effect on me uh which i won't explain to you because it'll make them feel sick but i um i had to learn to adapt adapt that so i literally traveled the world tour with a blender and I had to buy them in different countries because of the different powers. So I've left copious amounts of blenders around the world <laughs> in different people's houses. And, um, and I've found, you know, obviously dairy-free or, or um, organic uh, proteins that aren't based in whey protein 
because that's still dairy, and um, and had to find ways to nourish my body and still maintain um, the competitive advantage that I was always looking for. Traveling to Europe was one of the hardest places because every morning is a croissant, a baguette, ham and cheese sandwich, um, and then beer at the end of the day. So <laughs> it was. Yeah. I used to lose a lot of weight when I traveled through Europe. Whereas most people stack it on, I would actually get quite frail, quite skinny, and quite. I'd lose a lot of my strength, and especially my muscle mass when I was through Europe. So that's why I had to start taking. Um, uh, blenders and protein powders and, and I used to travel with herbs and then I realized the benefit of, of actually learning how to cook and then staying in places that had kitchens so I could cook myself meals because if I ate out all the time then I was just compromising my diet again. So yeah, it came down to knowing your body and listening to it and honoring it, which I still do. On that train, uh, are you ritualized? Are you somebody who had a ritual did they follow routine they followed prior to going into a contest? Mm. Are you ritualized with how you manage? Because you've got a lot of things going on at any given time. Do you do you, are you do you believe in them? I believe in rituals if they serve you and allow you to compete or perform to the best of your ability. So if they start to compromise or sabotage your performance, then it's a matter of shifting it and changing it. So it's a constant uh, analysing situation. You've got to be very self-reflective and and be prepared to to be honest with what's happening. You can convince yourself that things are serving you and helping you, but deep down you know they're not. So it's got to be able to – you've got to be able to adapt basically. And so I I became a little bit ritualised – well, actually, the rituals that I had in the 90s were very different to the rituals that I that I adapted to in, in the early 2000s because we're still learning about nutrition. You know, we've turned our food pyramid upside down. <laughs> so things in the 90s when I wanted to lose weight, they put me on a low-fat diet and made me have low-fat yogurt and fruit and... Um, and all, all sorts of other low-fat stuff. And then when in the when I became allergic to yeast and intolerant to gluten and dairy, then I had to completely change my diet and travel with a whole bunch of different supplements. And when I had chronic fatigue syndrome, I had to get other supplements. And then throughout my career, when I've had different ailments, so I had to change the way that I approached my nutrition. Oh, there's just so many things I've had to change. But there's, there's one thing that I've really learned that's really valuable, especially as a from a professional athlete's point of view, that you need to fuel your body with protein. And it was really interesting. In 2006, I think it was, when I was on the ASP Women's World Tour, they decided to do this bit in Europe where they would ask everyone what they had for breakfast. And the majority of my competitors had orange juice, coffee, and a croissant or a baguette. And I was the only one that had made scrambled eggs with goat's cheese and herbs and had um, green tea. I'm thinking, wow, I'm definitely, no wonder my career has been so much longer than everybody's is because I've nourished my body properly. Do you still do it today? I don't have any rituals anymore as far as my nutrition is concerned, other than the fact I stay away from yeast. I haven't eaten red meat in 20 years. I'm not iron deficient. I, um, I do ensure most of the time that I have protein in the mornings because when you have protein at breakfast time, it reduces your sugar cravings later in the day. So it's a sustained release uh, and it stops you from having those those um, moments in the afternoon where you just want to go to sleep and, and crave sugar. So, uh, And I, I reduced my level of my alcohol intake considerably as well because it just doesn't 
help me think straight. Actually, there's one ritual my husband and I have adopted recently over the last couple of years, and that's the 5-2 diet. We do love that. So the 5-2 diet, run that for us. The 5-2 diet is, um, I wouldn't call it a diet. It's just actually a way of life. So five days a week, you eat whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want. Two days a week, you eat uh, calorie-controlled intake of breakfast and dinner and nothing in the middle of the day. So is that, And the calorie uh, control is 500 a day for women and 600 a day for men. And is that to give your system some fasting time, just to give it a break to yeah. basically cleanse and like a, it's a way of introducing intermittent fasting, like? Yes, absolutely. Because when you fast, it gives your body a complete another break. So every time you put something in your mouth, it's got to process it, break it down eliminate it, um, digest it. So it gives your digestion system, your endocrine system, your immune system, your elimination system. It gives your whole body a break from when you, if you don't eat. So ideal of the gap is between 10 to 12 hours throughout the day. So you're still being active. And it's amazing how much clearer I am mentally when I have these fast days. And I really enjoy them. I tend to have them Mondays because I can overindulge on weekends. So my body actually looks forward to a Monday. Like, yay, a break from all that <laughs> shit that you're eating. <laughs> yay, no hot chips today. And then normally Thursday in preparation for the weekend. <laughs> yeah. So basically what you're telling us, Lane, is that your diet revolves around your weekend partying. Is that, is that right? <laughs> no. Rock no, and roll, it rock revolves, star. It revolves around indulgent periods. That's yeah, okay. So, yeah, you just – but the last few weeks we've been traveling and hanging out with friends and doing some fun stuff. So it's been about a – I think it's been a 16-0 to this point in time. So I'll get back into it next week. We've spoken to a number of high-performance athletes over the couple of years we've been doing this show. And when it comes to rituals, you've, you were obviously reasonably ritualized around your food. But one thing that intrigues me is rituals around performance. Did you have any rituals, like say you were going into a big final, did you have any rituals, mental or physical, that you'd, you'd put yourself through before a big competition? There was more actions that I took. So the rituals, I mean, they could be perceived in a variety of ways. But for me, it was a matter of showing up to the event at least two hours before my heat time and taking the time to watch the conditions and create a game plan, plan A, plan B, seeing how the conditions were shifting according to the swell, tide and winds, um, seeing how other com- uh, competitors were performing and, and, you know, drawing some clues from them. Uh, taking my way, taking myself away from a competition and away from distractions and just uh, centering myself, doing some breathing exercises or centering exercises just to slow down my brain and eliminate any kind of negative chatter that may be going on in my head. So just giving myself a chance to create some space, some space for creativity. Um, And then once I've established my game plan and know what I'm after, what I'm out to do then just go out there and do it and not think about it so basically all the preparation was done on land and then once I hit the water it was a matter of going into autopilot can I just ask you Lane on that land ritual you went through that let's call it a process or routine I saw an article written on Kelly Slater who is arguably one of the great male surfers of all time, if not the greatest. Right? Oh, he's the greatest, and he's also one of the greatest athletes of all time. Yeah, and it, what was what was curious, and, I, and I'd like your thoughts on his his routine and how it ties back to how do you quieten that voice? He said, before I go in the water for a contest, I look out at the waves, and if I can see any no's, I don't go in the water. I don't go in the water until I can see all yeses. 
And I, I thought it was very profound and I've used it a lot on myself uh, in different areas of my world, but I'd be interested in knowing how you, when you are watching the competitors, you're obviously looking at people you will be surfing against as you work through the quarters and semis and so on. And you've got the distractions in your mind on a busy beach. It's all going on. You've seen somebody else compete. I would imagine even at your level, there'll be a stack of stuff going through your mind before you go in the water. What specifically did you do to make sure the voices were in the right place? Uh, well, Oh, a variety of things. Sometimes I had a little book in my backpack and I used to write down all the negative things that were going on in my mind. Um, then my one of my personal trainers, uh, my kickboxing coach, taught me a really valuable technique of being able to center myself using a visualization technique and a breathing technique. Then several years later, I learned NLP, Neuro Linguistic Programming, and learned to silence the chatter in my mind. Uh, then I started to incorporate meditation. So I've used a variety of different tools to um, just center myself and, and clear my mind and just um, be in a state of awareness um, without distraction. I wonder what Kelly means. Like, how, did he did he elaborate on how he went from those to yeses? Uh, he he talked about the fact he talked about the fact that the mind runs away with all the reasons why you can't do things. And so he wouldn't let himself go in the water until his dialogue was all in a positive framework where he knew he would do well and he was entering the water with no element of doubt in his mind. Right. And how did he get to that point? I don't know. Sad, if you know him, I'll interview him and ask him. Okay, sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> get him to give us a bell, will you? Yeah. Can, we, can we get him on the show? Yeah. What, are, yeah. what are the chances, Lay? Not good. Pull some strings. <laughs> no, I don't know. I don't know, but I, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah, and that's the thing. A lot of the world's best athletes, they do a lot of internal work. Uh, a lot of people just see the performance and think, wow, that guy's gifted or that guy's talented or he must work hard and look how look how strong and fit and healthy they are. Mm. But they don't know the emotional work that these athletes do. And uh, Kelly's one of those athletes that does a lot of that kind of work. And um, he's a very... He can be quite an introverted and, and reflective person. So um, it was good of him to share some of that intel with the world because he doesn't tend to share too much. Um, but uh, everyone, every athlete that I know does, does things differently and it all comes down to what works for you. So and that's why I, my processes evolved as I evolved as an athlete because our performances and our preparation to perform became much more tangible, much more... Um, tactile, you know, we knew exactly what, what state we needed to be in and we knew exactly how to get into that state and we knew how much time was going to be required for us to get into that state. You mix, let's go down that pathway, you mix in a lot of circles, mm. having worked with the Australian Olympic team, being on the, the rock star circuit, so to speak, world <laughs> Which champion. One? My husband's tour <laughs> or my tour? All of them. <laughs> <laughs> And being a world champion and you're getting to see and meet, interact with a lot of people who are super impressive at the absolute top of their game and whatever sport or business level they're in. Has there been someone that you've met and walked away going, wow, now that's an impressive human being? Is there someone who comes to mind? There's not one person that comes to mind. I'm racking my brain to think of, and I know when I get off this call, I think, oh, I wish I said, hmm. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there is one person that comes, 
There, yeah, I might have to. There is one person that just that I think of when when you say those words, and I think of Steve Irwin. He was um, such a passionate but ex- an excitable, um, humble, loving, caring, nurturing human. And what you saw, and I think where you're going with this is what you see off screen, or, or what you see on screen also occurs off screen, which is exactly the kind of person I am. So Steve was one of those kind of guys. Um, and that's why I miss him so much. But uh, yeah, I'd have to, <laughs> I'd have to just sit down in a space and just go, who is it in my life that I walk away from? Because there's a lot of people I've met like that, yeah. uh, where I just go, wow, it's so refreshing to know that the way that you are when I see you um, in action is exactly the way that you are when you're out of that arena. You, you're very active. You've got some wonderful charity work, which we'll get onto in a second, that you're already doing. Where, where is your thinking time, Blaine? Where is your deep, deep work? Where is the time where you ponder, create, reflect? The hour of surf I have every day. Surfing time is, uh, is my time. It's Blaine's, Blaine's well, where I get to reflect and, <laughs> and process. <laughs> excellent. Blaine's well, excellent. excellent. <laughs> <laughs> party on. <laughs> party on, dude. Party on, Lane. <laughs> party on, Garth. Do you get any any weird reactions in the surf? Like if you pop down to Manly Beach and jump in for a surf and paddle yep. out the back, does anyone look at you and go, hang on, aren't yeah. you? Oh, you're Lane Beachley. Yes, I am. Not every day I get to surf with a lot of Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. I get, a, I get a few. Not too many, though. Most of the time they expect to see me down there, either Manly or... Or you know, somewhere on the northern beaches, but um, you know, I do, I do get the. I, I've had one. <laughs> there's a couple of guys sometimes that I see that they just say the strangest things, and you go, "Why did you just say that? Like, think it, but please don't say it." Like, I had this guy paddle out the other day, and he goes, "Oh, it's my favourite time of the day," and I said, "What surfing?" He goes, "No, paddling out behind a seven times world champion's butt." Like, that's something you just... <laughs> <laughs> that's something you just think, don't say it, dude, really. Yeah, it must be one um, of the nice things about surfing, though, because if you're an elite swimmer, you probably go swimming in the local pool or yeah. you know, if you're a race car driver, you've got your own gym or whatever. It must be really grounding to go out and enjoy your sport and, and get out amongst those of us who aren't as talented. Are you saying that the less talented people are supposed to make me feel humble? No, no, sorry. No, I'm not trying to say that at all. What I'm trying to say is it, it, like the... So- I'm trying to I'm trying to point to the social side of it, to the fact oh, that you know right. you, you yes. sort of you keep your feet on the ground, sort of thing. People, you know, the great thing about surfing, it's not the people that keeps you on the ground; it's the ocean itself. It's such a powerful yeah, force, right. and it's it's that's the humbling environment. That's the fact that the ocean reflects your emotions. If you go out there arrogant and cocky, it'll slap you in the head and knock you down and push you onto the bottom and fill your bikini with sand before you know it. Whereas if you go out feeling a sense of curiosity or gratitude or appreciation, then it's an, you find yourself in a state of effortless flow. It's graceful and easy and fun. So um, the ocean teaches me more about myself than the people in the ocean. Um, and I love the social aspect, but most of the time I go, to, go surfing to experience solace. I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to be distracted by conversation. I actually just want to go out there and, and meditate and, and analyze and reflect and think and and have my own little internal conversations, which I do every day, and, or sing or do whatever I want, you know. So um, the fact that people paddle up to me and, um, and enter into that space can be quite a distraction, but I've made a, a, a 
very firm commitment with myself that when people are in my space, I make the time for them, irrespective of whether I consider it to be um, uh, an, inc- uh, an inconvenience or not. So um, I, I always make the time for people. So when people say silly things to me, sometimes it depends on the mood I'm in. I either smile or laugh along with them or I'll, or I'll respond in a way that may be full of cheek or jest. But, uh, you know, paddle, people paddle up to me and say, oh, it's not every day you surf for the world champion. And I look at them and go, it is for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I hate it when I get sand in my bikini too, can I just say? Well, I know, yeah, sandball, yeah, not fun. Yeah. Lane, when you think back through your career in your quiet moment out the back at Manly Beach and in between waves, you are having that reflection time, that gratitude time. Is there a, a person or a moment in your career to today, up to this point, that's had the biggest impact on your life? Does one come to mind? Yeah, my dad. I mean, he chose me and he uh, he's my rock in my life. He's been such an inspiration. He's been dealt some severe blows throughout his life, um, but he's straight, he stayed strong and stoic and... He still gets up at the age of 78 and runs Manly Beach at 5 o'clock in the morning every single day, brain, hail or shine. Um, And uh, he's just been my absolute pillar of inspiration and support my whole life. So he's he's my, uh, yeah, he's the man that I'm just so eternally grateful for. Is there a lesson that you've taken from your dad? Is there a lesson that has been left with you over these years that, you know, each day you remember Neil's words? Mm, I remember my, and this is how kids learn, we learn from actions more so than words. So it's more my dad's actions than his words that I've learned from. Because, you know, you asked, Gary asked the question earlier about, you know, he told you one thing, you heard another, yet when you're in the water, you were, you were uh, encountering hostility, yet you chose to stand up and, and fight. And my dad dropped out of high school when he was 14. He's been traveling the world ever since. He's been a very successful businessman. Um, and his actions to me demonstrate that you can be anything you want to be. You don't have to be dictated to by society's norms or pressures or expectations. You, uh, Despite your education or despite your beginnings or irrespective of who you are and where you come from, if you're willing to invest yourself into doing something and you're committed to doing it and you surround yourself with the right people, you can achieve it. And I wasn't born a world champion. I wasn't born with the ability to be a world champion. I was constantly told I didn't have what it takes to be a world champion, but I committed myself to it. I surrounded myself with world champions. I surrounded myself with experts and I just never gave up on it. Nice. And one last thing before we let you go, which segues from what Neil demonstrated, is on the front page of your website, it says, live an hashtag unbeatable life. What does that mean to you, Lane? As a final word to close this out, what's what's an unbeatable life mean to you? An unbeatable life means not allowing life to dictate terms. It's about living a life by design, not by default. It's about not allowing life's heartaches and situations and challenges to get you down. You are, you have an unbeatable spirit if you choose to back yourself, surround yourself with great people and continue to go after what it is you want. But that all starts with a sense of clarity or a clarity around who you are, what drives you, what you want to do, how you want to feel, who you want to be, and then maintaining that sense of commitment to doing that. And just being unbeatable in life means fulfilling your potential in life. What a great way to finish, Robbo. 
Well, we can't finish yet. We can't have a seven-time world not? champion on the show and not do a nifty 90. Oh, a seven-time world champion. Do you think Lane's up for it? I don't know. Are you up for it, Lane? Okay. <laughs> Robbo's Nifty 90. All right, Miss Beachley, you're in the final. Here we go. Okay. What was the last book you read? The Gifts of Imperfection by Brene Brown. Dogs or cats? Cats. Beside loved ones, obviously, and pets and stuff, what three things would you grab if your house was burning down? My husband, my computer, and a clean set of clothes. Off the record, does the husband fall into the family or pets category? (laughs) Family. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have any pets. I can't even keep an Villa pound alive. <laughs> Finish this sentence. I never get tired of. Surfing. What's best done slowly? Uh, keep your mind out of the gutter. Disney, Disney, Disney. Um, napping. If you could get a plane ticket for free anywhere in the world, where would you go and why? You know what? Go to Italy. And why? Because I've never been there. What's your favourite TV show? I don't watch TV. Three words to describe yourself. Cheeky, compassionate, Generous. What's your favourite naughty treat? Oh, I actually have three. Um, hot hot chips, dark chocolate and red wine. Oh, what a combination. Yeah, all at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and that's after the gin and tonic. <laughs> oh, there you go. So, uh, so you bounce out of bed in the morning, your mojo's not quite happening. You jump in the car and you're thinking, today's not going to happen. I need to get my mojo going. What song do you reach to on the iPod to get your mojo going for the day? In excess, don't change. Oh, oh that's the correct answer. Yeah, I tell you what, cha-ching. <laughs> that is the correct answer. <laughs> I'm standing here on the ground. Yeah. Oh, oh. I see. Yeah, love it. That's a mojo maker, that one. It is a mojo maker, absolutely. Lane, you've been terribly generous with your time. This has been a long-form show, but it's just been wall-to-wall gold. And I'm going to say, I personally am a massive fan of yours, and I think you're just a great oh. Australian on many fronts. People who want to follow your work on charities to get in touch, people who'd like to come in. And i got to say, anybody who's in the corporate world who wants a great speaker, I've done a number of jobs with this lady, tops gold. Thanks, uh, <laughs> Thanks Gaz. How do they find you, Lane? They find me on my website, lanebeachley.com, and they find me also through my Aim for the Stars website, so aimforthestars.com.au. Beautiful, and I will put links in the show notes for you. i, I got to say thank you so much. We've, we've kept you way over time. You're welcome. Time, but yeah, you were just so good. No worries. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for your time. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. Robert, we're going to stay with the surfing theme to take us out today. Okay. Coming from the Halcyon House of M's back in the day, which is the Triple M rock network around Australia, one of our favourite bands of all time as a rock network was Pearl Jam. Oh, yeah, rock personified, absolutely. We toured them many times, did interviews with them, uh, just an amazing group of true musicians led by Eddie Vedder. Now, my segue between Eddie Vedder and surfing and Lane is that he is a a really big fan of surfing and I saw Eddie Vedder do a really cool video on YouTube with Laird Hamilton, who's the world's greatest big wave surfer. 
And they talked about the spirituality of the surf. And I thought, well, if you're going to finish with somebody that'll take us from a lesson of rock in the genre of surfing, let's go with Eddie. So let's hear what Eddie has to say about the creative process. It's a melody. It's a sound. It's a, and that's like, that's part of my homework. It's like, what is, what does that sound mean? What is, what is, okay, this is a chord change. This is this, this is a melody. Okay. But what does that mean? What is it? Where am I? Where, if I close my eyes, where am I? If there's a person or if there's an aspect of life in this song, what is it? So it's finding the mood of it and saying, well, what what fits? All hail the great man. It, to me, it's a great way to finish the show. And I'll tell you why. Would you like to know why? I'll tell you why. I'd like to. I'm, I'm curious, Gary. Tell me why. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you why. Whether you like it or not, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I hear a lot of podcasts and I think we're the same, is that we finish a show we go to the next podcast. If you're on the road and you're doing a couple of hours in your car, you hear one podcast, you quickly search through and put on the next one. And I like the idea of finishing this show with a, what what does it mean? During the song that we finished the show with, I would urge anybody who's a regular fan of the Mojo Radio Show to use that song to say, "What what does that really mean for me? Don't just copy what Lane or Colin or anybody else said, but... What, is it, what does it really mean in your world? So for you personally, what does it mean for your dreams, your aspirations, your family, your community, your contribution, your being of service? And I, I just like the idea of having a song at the end where you can almost meditate in a way, if not rock out, but meditate to go, what am I going to do with this? I've invested an hour in this show and we promise you gold every show. But just take one nugget and go, what does this mean to me and what will I do with it? Mm. Don't you reckon? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely, 100%, because there's so many lessons. But if you, if, you try and make them, if you try and take them literally and do what that person's exactly what they're talking about, then it's not yours. It's not yours to follow. It's just copying someone else. Right? So that's my, uh, that's my close to Mojo University for this week. I am going to leave the final song oh. to you uh, as a Pearl Jam aficionado. Yeah, I'm going to embarrass a lot of people here because they're going to be, you know, sitting on the bus singing this out loud with their headphones on, not realising they're doing it. It's got to be alive, doesn't it? Surely. We're out.
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see GaryBurtWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealTimeCasting.com Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.